Welcome to the Twisted Mirror. Lots of new things to announce since the last episode. I've started a Facebook discussion group called Behind the Mirror. It's just a place you can discuss the show, get progress updates on episodes, etc. Facebook groups can devolve into a horror show of their own, so I just ask that people keep civility in mind. Otherwise, I'll have to call Susie out of a PTA meeting, and she is vicious. Link is in the show notes. Twisted Mirror now has merch. Just go to twistedmirrorpodcast.com and click on merch. And while you're there, I also started an email list that you can sign on to from the homepage. Right now, I plan on sending one email with each new episode, discussing some additional thoughts on it. As the podcast grows, I may use it to make relevant reminders, but I promise to never overwhelm your inbox. Please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen and share with other fans of horror or on social media. That kind of support goes a long way for an indie podcast that has a $0 marketing budget. Last thing, this story is a two-parter, but you won't have to wait too long for part two. That'll be coming in a few days. You are now staring into a twisted mirror. Have you ever been lost? I don't mean Google Maps made you take a few extra turns lost. I mean hopelessly lost. You've been wandering in the wilderness and the sun will be setting soon kind of lost. Your heart races. You keep going, hoping that just around the corner, you'll find your way back. But with each soul-sucking failure, frustration grows. You start to feel like you may never make it back. Every minute that passes feels longer than the one before. You grow weary. Despair begins to dominate hope. At that moment, there's no place you'd rather be than somewhere familiar. On your broken-in living room sofa or in the arms of a loved one. You just have to make it back. Then, everything will be alright. Today's episode is about a woman who is lost and is trying to find her way back home. I can't even remember why we chose the particular hiking path we did that day. Our new home was close to dozens of trails. Usually, We rotated between the same three or so, preferring familiarity over reading online reviews, putting directions into our navigation, learning a new path, and all the subtle adventures that added up when all we wanted to do was burn some calories on a Wednesday afternoon. This was the day we opted for the novel and chose a new path. It was easy and quiet, the reviews said. We drove along the winding canyon roads with Devon at the helm. I rested my head against the window and admired how the clouds cast vast shadows along the sides of the massive canyon walls. 
It highlighted how immense they were, that the colossal clouds couldn't fully shade them, and conversely, how small we were. I'd look over at the semi-arid slopes of the parched Southern California chaparral and think, they could drop me right on one of those things alone, and I wouldn't survive a week. I wondered, when was the last time, if ever, a human had set foot on one of those canyons that lined the side of the road? They were ever so present in the daily commutes of many people, yet completely out of our grasp. These canyons were carved of ancient stone. They had seen so much time pass. And our own entire lives were such a small speck compared to their existence. My phone buzzed. It yanked me out of my contemplative state. It was a text from Tony. Did you get Dad's gift yet? I snickered. My reaction caught Devin's attention. Who is it? I rolled my eyes in a pantomime of irritation. Tony. He wants to know if I got Dad something yet. Devin did the same playful eye roll. Yes, I did. You owe me $70, I texted back. It had been like this as long as I could remember. My brother was the wild one, the rambunctious kid. I was the older sister, by hardly a year, who always covered for his ass. This meant every birthday, he'd forget about getting Dad a gift, and it would be on me to get a joint one. Every year I would put the note on the attached card, from Lindy and Tony. There were years, not that long ago, when Tony had struggled with addiction. My dad would read the card that had both of our names, he would look at me with a knowing smile. Of course my brother hadn't signed off on our gift or contributed. He had vanished on us again. In the past three years or so, however, Tony had turned so much of his life around. He got clean, got a job as an apprentice at a tattoo shop, and had been kicking ass. We were both artists and I think that further solidified our bond. It was a wordless, secret language we spoke with one another. Creating art alone didn't pay the bills for me, so my art history degree allowed me to snag a job as an outreach director for a mid-sized local art museum. I thought that always encapsulated us in a nutshell. Same, but different. Wild and responsible. The tattoo artist and the outreach director for the fine arts. I was happy to play the big sis, to know he would actually pay me back, not because of the money, but because the growth it displayed, and because I knew that he'd show up to the fancy dinner I'd planned on the coming weekend for our dad's birthday. Dad, a simple guy who considered TGI Fridays to be a big night out, would insist the whole ordeal was too much and talk about how many groceries he could buy compared to each single menu item. But he would secretly love the porterhouse that no chain restaurant could replicate. Tony texted me back. Well, what did we get him? Ah, shit, Devin muttered. I looked up and saw the source of his frustration. A sign that read, 
park closed due to fires. Really? I asked. Well, what did it say on Google? He asked. I swear it did not say it was closed. He sighed. It's getting late. If we try to go somewhere else, it'll be too close to sunset. Shit. I looked around. We were on the dirt road that led up to the parking lot, which was simply just a differently shaped area of dirt. No one could see us from the main road unless they drove up. I huffed. The fires were so long ago, I didn't think anything would still be closed. Devin made his thinking noise. Uh, Want to go for it? I gave him a mischievous smirk. You think? What if it's dangerous? You said it yourself. The fires were a long time ago. The biggest danger is falling rocks, but look at those pictures. Most of the land is flat and open. If we get to anything that looks unsafe, we'll turn around, right? It is getting kind of late. It's not like anyone cares. Devin clapped his hands together loudly. Let's do it. We lived in a tourist town, and now that school was back in session, many of the recreational spaces became akin to ghost towns. But this area was even more quiet than we were used to. Though only being a short car ride away from civilization, we felt completely isolated. There was something quaint about the parking system for this particular trail, which hadn't seen any modernization over the past several decades. A box was affixed to a wooden pole. In it were envelopes. Instructions said to place $4 in an envelope, rip off the affixed tag to place on your windshield, and slide the payment into the secure box. My inherent cynicism told me that no one ever actually did this. Not with no other souls watching. But Devin, my sweet and honorable fiancé, insisted we pay. If we're going to break the law, we might as well be good citizens about it, he insisted. Fine, I shouted, pacing ahead of him toward the trail. Just go ahead and leave evidence of us breaking the law, you boy scout. Much like the parking system, there was a time capsule field to other areas of the park. We walked past the grounds that led to the path, alongside a small amphitheater that looked like it hadn't seen an event in at least 20 years, evidenced by a large fallen branch rested across two rows of seats. There were picnic benches farther along, canopied by naked trees, their branches creeping over them like arthritic fingers. The raw wood frames of the tables and benches peered out from under chips of faded green paint. The dry and fertile dirt that had picked up and blanketed them without so much as a handprint told that no one had shared a meal here in a long while. I imagined families dressed in 1970s camp wear, bustling along bright Crayola green benches and listening to a concert in an amphitheater of freshly poured concrete. Somehow, Somewhere along the way, this park ceased to be a gathering point. It was a discarded carcass, its soul long gone, and only served now as a walkway to an ill-frequented, entry-level hiking trail. Signs aren't great, I helped over to Devon as we walked along a narrow incline, hacking through tall weeds. They never are, but we should be fine, he assured me. 
After the initial, craggy, overgrown part of the hike, the trail opened up to a wide dirt path, flanked by flatlands on each side. It was almost too comfortable to be considered a hike, but it was clear at this point that you came here for the beauty and solitude. In the distance, over semi-arid plains, mountains loomed. The clouds mingled with the tops of their peaks, hinting at intermingled shades of blue and gray. Boulders of unfathomable size and weight perched on mountain faces, with the grace of a ballerina on point. That wide-open path lasted about a mile, and I noted toward the end of it that there were hardly any scorch marks from the fires that had supposedly required this place to be shut down. I stopped several times to take pictures, marveling at the postcard views in every direction. It slowed us down, but neither one of us were too concerned. Finally, we approached the end of this section of the trail, which took us to a cliff overlooking the Pacific, and two choices. First, do we take the risk? Fires loosen the earth, which makes rocks unstable. However, the last major fire had happened over a year ago. Nearly everything looked healed over. It hadn't rained in so long, which was usually what precipitated rock slides. It just seemed as if Parks and Rec never got around to removing the sign, as this trail seemed to be off the beaten path. Our second choice was right or left. We went right. The path was again narrow, and we were flanked by knee-high brush on both sides at some points, cliff edges and rock faces on others. What's that? Devin asked. I was behind him, snapping views of sunbeams parting through clouds and plunging into the ocean. I turned toward him and saw that he was about 15 feet ahead, where there was an opening. I jogged over to find a statue, rusty and forgotten by time. It looked like it was made of junk metal and was contorted into a tall, unfamiliar tangle of shapes. My art museum employee side came to the fore. I circled it, slowly setting its twists and turns, looking to see if there was some sort of plaque indicating its history. It was so out of place, as if dropped from the sky. Its oxidized metal hues and inorganic form contrasted the endless nature around it. I thought part of the charm of the piece itself was its location, a mysterious monolith in the middle of the barren southern California rocky terrain. Since it wasn't solid, one could see nature through it from any angle, making its environment part of its very visual design. I don't know. People will put an art installation anywhere, I guess. I wonder if the curator at the museum knows more about this. I made a mental note to ask. We didn't think much of it for the next few minutes until we came upon a boulder. Smaller rocks built up to it like a nature-made staircase, making it an irresistible little climb to heighten views. It was then I saw something etched into one of the rocks. Its twisted, unusual shape was deeply cut into the rock and would have required at least some sort of chisel. It took me a few seconds to realize it looked like a two-dimensional version of the metal sculpture Devin had pointed out earlier. I mentioned it to Devin, who essentially shrugged it off as he helped me back down. Ten more minutes before we turn around, he alerted.
We playfully raced the last ten minutes, trying to get as far along as we could before we needed to turn to make it back before sunset. When Devin's alarm went off, we keeled over, panting breathlessly. I glanced over at the horizon. Let me catch my breath quick, and we'll go back. Devin walked over to me and wiped some sweaty hair off my cheek. We smiled at each other, and he kissed my forehead. When I looked over his shoulder, about 40 feet away, I spotted a large tree. It was broad and tall and had dozens of long, strong branches curling out of it like tentacles. They layered over large rocks, descending in height that formed something of an altar around this huge tree. The bark was as dark as charcoal, and even the dirt around the area was black, like someone had once poured gasoline on the whole thing and lit a match. Even the rocks appeared scorched. Perhaps the fires had done the most damage here. It was bizarre, though, how aside from this area, everything around it was completely healed, if ever harmed at all. It was as though there was some invisible circle of demarcation that had singed the tree and the rock formation encircling it, but had spared everything else around it. Much like the way a tornado will decimate a house while leaving the one next door wholly intact. It beckoned me. Ooh, we need another pick, I said, running over to it. It's so spooky. All right, but we need to hurry, Devin insisted while pulling out his phone. I posed quickly as he snapped a few photos, but the session was short-lived since I wanted to take a closer look. The nook reminded me of a haunted forest from a fairy tale book I had as a child. As I neared the base of the tree, I saw something branded into the bark. It was the same symbol I had seen earlier carved into the boulder, the one that looked much like the installation we had spotted before that. The faintest chill rode up my arms as I ran a finger over it. Hey, that symbol's here again. Weird, huh? Maybe it's an omen. Devin wiggled his fingers and mocked ghostly sounds. I rolled my eyes. We should hit it, he insisted, ever the responsible one. I slapped his ass. Well, hurry up then. The walk back was mostly downhill, and we cruised down the cliff trail, past the statue, and back onto the wide open path that signaled the beginning of the end of our hike. The sky had begun to glow with shades of fire and rose, reminding us night would come quickly, but we were well on pace to make it out before darkness settled. I pulled my phone out of my pocket. Let's sing, I declared. Devin didn't say anything, but offered an agreeable shrug. We had a running thing between us, where I would play cheesy, often older songs, the kind that were easy to sing along to over a fire or out on a hike. Devin always played it cool, or rolled his eyes at my corniness, but he wouldn't even last 30 seconds before he was singing, too. I pressed play on Wouldn't It Be Nice by the Beach Boys. Ugh, not this one again, he mumbled. I didn't acknowledge his complaint, instead belting out the introduction with an obnoxious level of enthusiasm. We dashed along, and as predicted, Devin joined in, sometimes singing, sometimes whistling. Keep going, I have to pee, he commanded after a minute or so. I nodded and kept my pace, happy not to watch him do his business. The song continued to play as we sung along, all accompanied by a lovely audible stream of urine. I trotted forward, but after 20 or so feet, his whistling and the sound of the pee stream stopped all at once. 
At that same moment, my head swirled with a sudden sense of intense deja vu. So intense, it almost brought me to my knees. I turned around, overruling Devin's request for privacy. He wasn't in the spot where I had just seen him. I did a full 360, thinking he had finished and somehow I missed him walking toward me or past me. Still, no sign of Devin. Devin? I called out meekly. Nothing. The land was flat for miles with patchy grass and brush. There were no tall trees or massive rocks within walking distance. The wide, clear path was visible for half a mile in each direction. It wasn't an easy place to hide. Yet I was sure he had. There was no other explanation. The song continued to play without our cheerful chorus. Dev? Dev? I called out tauntingly in an attempt to convince myself it was a game he was playing. I jogged a few feet up and down the path, as though it would change my already clear visibility. I had begun to grow annoyed, but I had an idea. I would call him. I doubt he remembered to silence his phone, and I was sure I would hear his ringtone somewhere out in the plains. Shit, I hissed as I laid my eyes on the zero bars of reception I had on my phone. Frustration struck me instantly. Okay, this isn't cute, I yelled. You were just rushing me to get back before dark, and now you're playing stupid games. I waited, my exasperation bubbling as nothing changed. The song still played on my phone, becoming an ironic soundtrack to my desperation. The once exuberant melody and voices transmuted into hollow, distant, uncanny tones as time seemed to slow down, inversely proportional to my steadily increasing heart rate. We hadn't seen any other people on this path the entire time we were out here but I hadn't felt alone. Even when we weren't speaking, we had the sounds of one another's presence. Footfalls on the dirt, kicked rocks, shuffled grass, racing breaths. Now, there was a deep sensation of solitude, like I was the only person on this earth. I could see barren flatland for hundreds of yards, and after that, Hills and mountains devoid of civilization. But I could not see Devon. The song ended just as a small breeze blew in and rattled some of the dry weeds. When it stopped, it amplified not just how alone I felt, but how alone I was. My stomach grew sick as I became overwhelmed with an inexplicable feeling. This wasn't a game. Devin was gone. I had turned my back for 15 seconds at most, and he had disappeared. It, it didn't make sense. Nervous sweat formed along my brow and down my back as my heart and thoughts raced on the same chaotic rhythm. My stomach continued to churn. I glanced up at the sky and saw the shades of amber and mauve making way for indigo. I had to make some quick choices before I found myself isolated in the dark for the last portion of the path, which was also the least maintained. I walked back up the dirt road, calling for Devin, but realized after fifty or so yards, this was pointless. If he had gone that way, I would have seen him with my own eyes for miles. I was losing light fast and decided the best thing to do would be to get back to my car, where there was hopefully reception 
and call for help if Devin somehow wasn't already there waiting for me. I let out one last guttural scream of his name, hoping he would pop out of the grass or from behind a rock and end the big prank. I prayed he was playing, but the void of nature consumed my cry. I was now certain I was the only person here. Once I committed to the decision to head back to the car, I ran, scared that if I lost light, I might be forced to wander through the final part of the hike back, narrow paths with prickly unkempt brush and several important turns in nature's pure darkness, alone. I ran the rest of the open dirt path, a half a mile or so, and hit the final part of the trail just as the sun began to subside. My thoughts were filled with static, panic, concern, fear, disbelief, annoyance, anger, all firing across different neurons so that I could only hardly remember which turn I was supposed to take on the poorly lit and badly marked path. I'd make one turn and then lose my faith halfway and double back. The harsh chaparral scraped my hands and legs as I rushed through the neglected paths. Finally, I came upon the broken pavement and dirt that led to the old picnic tables and amphitheater, and to the parking lot entrance. Normally in the dark, their phantasmal presence would have terrified me, but now it given me hope. Are you fucking kidding me? I shouted as I gained sight of the barren clay lot and road. I searched around in utter disbelief, my confusion so acute that it morphed into a type of terror. Was I losing my mind? Why wasn't anything making sense? I paused and took a deep breath to steady my speeding heart. Maybe, inexplicably, Devin had lost me. Maybe he came back and got the car and was trying to get help to find me. A call would solve everything. I pulled up my phone, hoping I could call Devin and make this bizarre situation end. At this point, I had a couple of bars, which I was sure was enough to make a call. But when I dialed him... A harsh, melodic series of tones preceded a robotic female voice telling me I could only make emergency calls. What the fucking fuck? I growled at the phone. I tried again and heard the same message. I tried at least ten times before I realized I wasn't getting anywhere. I tried calling a friend, but it became clear that my phone, which I had paid on time, religiously, for years, had been disconnected. And it couldn't have happened at a worse time. At this point, it was dark, and the walk home was at least an hour away on foot. On top of that, these were canyon roads with sharp turns and no sidewalk. I thought about calling 911, but it seemed silly. 911 isn't a taxi service, and I had some money in my pocket and feet that worked. My concern for Devin turned into frustration and anger as I walked along the pitch-black winding roads. He had left me out here. But what if he hadn't? What if somehow someone had put a knife to his throat and made him hide in silence? Then they beat me to the car and took off. I didn't know how long it would have been possible to hide, with the low terrain for miles and no plant life taller than a foot. But I was running out of scenarios. It's why I couldn't just sit at the entrance to the park and wait. I had to find a way home, a place that was familiar and resolve this mess. The bottle of water I had with me had run out, and though the night was cooler, thirst and hunger clawed at my stomach. 
A car passed, but I was too scared to flag it down for help. That would be the last resort. After 25 or so minutes, I reached the main road. It took me another 10 minutes to get to a gas station. The indifferent attendant let me call a car service since my apps wouldn't even work for a rideshare. As the car pulled into my neighborhood, something felt off kilter. The best way I can describe it is as if someone had gone into your home and moved everything an inch to the left. The houses were familiar, and yet things I couldn't quite put my finger on were different. Even in my frantic state, I noticed these details, and the strangeness only increased my anxiety and anger. For example, Jeff and Bella across the street didn't have their black Tahoe parked on the driveway like they did every night. Instead, there was a silver pickup truck I had never seen before. Mr. O'Grady's impeccable lawn now had children's toys scattered across it. I sat in the car for a few beats longer than I should have, until the driver nudged me a bit, asking if this was in fact my place. Yes, I replied, in a fog of fatigue and bafflement. I handed him some cash I had been lucky enough to stash in my pocket and stepped out of the car. The air felt charged when I stepped out, like a storm was on its way. It was surprising because the day had been particularly dry and there was no rain in the forecast. I stood in front of our house and that uncomfortable feeling intensified. It was the same marine blue facade, the same perennials crowning our front yard, but there was an unfamiliar potted plant by the front door. There was no car in the driveway. That meant Devin wasn't home yet. My panic resurfaced with the realization. Did I really leave him out there in the dark? If I did, then why were there lights on inside the house? A figure moved past one of the upstairs windows. I glanced at the vertical numbers by the door, assuring myself this wasn't a look-alike home. That I hadn't just driven into an uncannily identical block with a similar name. You know... 3190 Dock Street instead of 3190 Rock Street. But this was it. This was our home. I felt my pockets for the key when I remembered that Devin had driven us. I went to the usual spot where we hid a spare key in a fake rock, but it wasn't there. I cursed under my breath, ready to scream at the top of my lungs. First the phone wouldn't work. Now this? I motioned to ring the doorbell but stopped just before my finger pressed the button. Something in my gut told me not to. What if that figure upstairs wasn't Devin? It sure didn't look like his shadow. It was yet another layer added to an already bizarre night. All the harebrained theories of kidnapping and wild scenarios of someone taking him for nefarious reasons started to become more plausible. I decided I'd look for the key one more time to have the element of surprise in my favor. I felt the top ledge of the door, looked through the bushes and under the doormat. Finally, I shined my phone at the potted plant that I was sure was not there before we left, and saw the fake rock was shoved under the base of the shrub. I gasped with relief, pulled the key out, and unlocked the door. The overbearing and offensive aroma of apple spice pounded me in the face. I scrunched my nose at it as I scanned the open plan first level. HGTV was playing on the television in front of an empty sofa. We had just bought that thing a few months ago. 
It was pristine when we left for the hike, but now it looked different. I couldn't quite place why at first, but as I studied it, I could see the subtle signs of wear and tear that I hadn't noticed before. There were wrinkles on the areas where we sat most frequently. The colors seemed duller, and there were a few discolorations from where something had been spilled and cleaned. I was agitated. We spent good money on it, and it already looked ten years old. A childlike blanket, something one would use to swaddle a baby, was tossed over the back. Oh, and the TV? It was bigger and brighter than ours. Devin and I had discussed getting ourselves a new one for Christmas. Maybe it was a surprise? In the kitchen, a steaming pot was over a flame. That's when my nose recognized that intermingled with the artificial apple spice scent was some sort of stew. My stomach groaned at the thought of a meal. I began to feel lightheaded and jittery as I processed the scene. So much of this was how I left it. The teal sectional on the Persian rug we got for a steal at an estate sale. The cheesy cursive rustic sign over the sofa that said, This is our happy place, was something Devin and I would have mocked during a trip to Home Goods. The candles and the cloying scent they emanated. I had always opted for softer florals and ambers. Apple spice was overpowering and always gave me a headache. As I continued my tour of my strange home, my temples began to ache. I wandered over to the fireplace, where on the mantle, there were once pictures of our travels to Hawaii and Barcelona and Tokyo, kayaking, standing next to La Sagrada Familia, standing in a rock garden. Those were the photos that I paused in front of in gratitude when I turned off the lights before heading to bed each night. They were missing now. Our engagement photo too, which I just put up last month, had made way for pictures of someone else. A blonde with a wide, white smile. There were not so many travels on the mantle anymore. Instead, there was a professional photo of her and Devin, my Devin, in front of a lake with matching flannel shirts. Then they were smiling, him in a tux, her in a white princess gown, glittering lights above them inside of a perfectly aged barn. Next to that, her holding a newborn baby in her arms at the hospital with the full face of makeup. She seemed like the type that never had a hair out of place and wore French manicures. I ran my fingers across my cheek in a sort of tactile response to her image. She and I were nothing alike, and yet here she was with my fiancé on my mantle, replacing me. I uttered choked sounds of disbelief. The words wouldn't come out, but I felt my heart turn denser in my chest. I didn't understand. I, I couldn't understand. Was this some sort of cruel joke? Did I wander into someone else's house that looked like mine on a street that looked like the one I came home to every day? Did Devin ditch me and manage to move me out and replace me in a few hours? None of that truly explained this. This equation could not add up. There was always an unsolved variable that wouldn't make sense. Footsteps softly padded down the stairs, accompanied by a melody of gentle coos. The sound stopped abruptly just as I turned and locked eyes with her. 
She was the woman in the pictures, but she wasn't posed like all the photos on my mantle. Her makeup was much softer, revealing a heavy spray of freckles all over her cheeks. Devin always said he wasn't into freckles, I thought to myself. This was good. He wouldn't have ended up with her. She was nothing like me. Swarthy and adventurous. She was a pageant girl at some point in her life. I could tell. I got into college on a soccer scholarship. She lived to make Pinterest crafts. I was a scattered brain artist who had a messy studio in the backyard. She had a perfect French manicure, just as I had suspected. I could never get all the paint out from my nail beds. I clung on to these flimsy clues, as if they were the last threads that adhered me to reality. She and I stared at one another in one of those interminable silences that was only a second or two long. What are you doing in my house? I asked. Her arms tightened around the infant. No. Her voice floundered in the back of her throat. I live here. My eyes remained locked on her, my mouth agape. I wanted to insist, to demand she leave. But it was her pictures everywhere. Her offensive apple spice candles flooding my nose and making my forehead throb. Her pot of stew on the range. Is this a joke? I asked Riley. She stood a little taller. It was almost as if I could see her coaching herself to be brave. My husband will be home any second now. Please just leave. Take whatever you want and leave. Leave? This was my house. I didn't need to take what was already mine. Okay. Where's Devin? I asked peeking around down the hallway, thinking he and a camera crew would jump out at any second to tell me I was being featured in a revival of punk She started to utter something like, don't do that, but stopped mid-sentence when she heard my question. Her eyes expanded in shock, but her voice was flat. He's not here. I need to call him. I pulled out my phone as I made my way back to where she and I had just first laid eyes on each other. Damn it! I cursed, remembering its inability to make calls. How, how do you know him? She asked. I scoffed at her in the sack. I was convinced more than ever this was an elaborate ruse. He's my fiancé, I answered. There was something in the way her eyes changed. There was a moment of recognition and then they glazed so precisely my stomach curled into a tight ball. No, she said, shaking her head. You can't be. It's not possible. What's not possible? I asked. She just stood there, blinking slowly. I don't know what any of this is about, but it's not funny. I have had the night from hell trying to get back here from that fucking hiking trail and... A spontaneous knot of emotion stole my voice and I swallowed it back. This isn't funny. The baby began to cry and I felt bad, but not enough to apologize. She studied me as she bounced it soothingly while her eyes told me she was digging through a vast bank of memories and experiences. Then something clicked 
and her eyes sharpened. This is a sick prank, right? How could you make a joke of this? Oh, I'm the one doing the prank? Where is he? I charged around the first level, searching for a Devon I had a sickening feeling was not in the house. The blonde held frozen at the top of the stairs. The knob on the front door clicked, and I let out a huge sigh of relief as I stomped over toward it. I was about 15 feet away, about the same distance as when I last saw Devin on the hike, when he walked in. Devin was different. He wasn't wearing his long sweatpants and a t-shirt. He had on a dark gray suit and was holding a briefcase. His hair was styled unlike I had ever seen before. Something in his face had changed. Gone were the ruddy, plump pads on his cheeks, allowing his jawbones to sharpen his face. He'd shaven the careless, days-old stubble I had last seen. Devin was a man coming home from work, not someone who had just vanished from a sweaty hike. He didn't even see me first, as I was in the shadows of the hallway while the other woman stood on the bright landing just across the front door. He had a pure smile on his face. It was like the look on his face when we first plopped down on our plush beds on our first real vacation together, or when we first got the keys to our new house. The imposter, standing on my staircase, must have looked terrified, because his face changed within a second. He was concerned now, and that's when perhaps on instinct, or perhaps she pointed over to me, I couldn't see. His eyes drifted over to the hallway. Up until this moment, I had been prepared to chastise Devin, but I sensed in my core that something serious had happened. Our eyes stayed locked for a second or two, and then the dull thud of his briefcase hitting the floor broke the trance. I had to say something normal, in an attempt to will away the dizzying feeling of deja vu. Though it wasn't precisely the feeling that this had all happened before, I sensed time was slowed so that I could feel it weave around me like sloshing water. What's this all about, Devin? It's not fucking funny. He stared back without a word. All the color in his face vanished, and I thought he might collapse. I had to maintain normalcy, so I took a few steps toward him and scolded him. You left me out there. I had to walk for miles and then find a ride. I could have been run over, kidnapped. And what the hell is all of this? Who the hell is she? He didn't say a word, and I felt sickness surging in my stomach. I am not playing this game anymore, Devin. I'm tired and hungry and done. I held back a tear that tickled my eyelid. He opened his mouth to say something, but the words wouldn't materialize. Pretending this was normal wasn't going to fix it, and I dropped the anger and allowed fear to take the reins. Devin? I insisted in a thin voice. He glanced up at her, whoever she was, at the top of the stairs. It's her he said, barely nodding his head. I lost all remaining composure. What the fuck is going on? Don't you talk to her. 
Look at me. Where the hell did you go? I don't know who the fuck she is and why all of her pictures are up there or what the fuck is happening. I'm starting to freak out here. The tear finally fell. Lindy? He asked. Yes? I scowled through pinched lips. He shook his head in disbelief and sharply paced away and then abruptly back, like he couldn't decide whether he wanted to jump into whatever he was about to say. He crouched down and raked his fingers through his hair. This isn't possible, he mumbled to himself. What isn't possible? I threw my arms up in exasperation. I was sick of being the only one who was not in on whatever was happening. Where have you been? He asked. All this time? Where have I been? I have spent the entire night looking for you after you ditched me. You were right there peeing and singing and I turned my back and then you're just gone. You left me out there. Where the hell were you all this time? When? He asked. Are you fucking kidding me? When? Today, when we went hiking, are you losing it? Why was this all so hard to comprehend? Devin put his hands up toward me to pacify. Lindy. He gulped and took a deep breath. Lindy, can you just sit down? I I need to talk to you. I need to talk to you. Those words aren't ever followed by good news. Suddenly I felt threatened by the person I love most in the world. No. I'm not gonna sit until you fucking tell me what is going on. Is this a prank? I began to walk into the rooms and flick on the light switches, looking for a bunch of friends, a camera crew, anything to stop this charade in its tracks. I will never forgive you for this, I yelled. I walked into the hallway a bit closer to Devon, and the base of the staircase, where I could now see the blonde still standing at the top of the first landing. I pointed without looking at her. She needs to go. Now. Devon looked at me, and then up at her, and mouthed something to her, quelling her. Rage and jealousy bubbled through every vein in my body. Okay. Okay. She's going to get out of here. She's going to go upstairs and pack some stuff up for the baby. Who is she? I asked, a steady stream now flowing down my cheeks. Let's just sit. No! I demanded, wild-eyed. Devin jumped a little, not out of fear, but as if he dropped a precious Fabergé egg and winced at the moment of impact. The woman hesitantly headed up the steps. You know what? I will sit. Right here on my sofa. I'm going to watch TV and do regular things, and you can continue the charade around me if you want, but I am over it. I marched past him to the sofa and plopped down. My heart fluttered at the recognition that the sofa didn't have the same bounce I knew. My gaze faced the unfamiliar sight of a TV that was not ours, but I pushed those doubts back down and stubbornly sat. Okay, Devin said his tone gentle in a way that was almost unfamiliar. As he took a few careful steps toward me, 
there was something foreign about him. He was like a stranger approaching me. As a result, his attempt to call me only backfired. I jumped to my feet. Don't say another word unless it's an explanation. He nodded and took a deep breath. <sighs> All right. All right, I will. But you have to listen. And you have to promise me you'll stay calm. I felt sick. You're scaring me. I'm sorry. There was a flicker of the Devon I loved when he said that. The kindness he exuded that wrapped around you like a warm blanket. Just please, listen and stay calm. It's gonna be okay. I closed my eyes and took a staggered breath. I answered with a shaky nod. You just said we went hiking tonight. I went to pee and I vanished, right? Then you came back here right away, right? Yeah, well, the car was gone, so I had to hightail it on foot and then take a cab. It was more of a whine. Indignation seemed pointless now. Okay, Lindy, I... He let out a half laugh of incredulity. Okay, yes. We went hiking together. I stopped to pee. Except when I turned, you were gone. You disappeared on me. I opened my lips to protest, but he raised a finger up because he wasn't finished. Seven years ago. I soaked in his words for some moments, and then I felt relief. <laughs> this was a joke. This was all a big fucking joke. I would be mad, and this might be the biggest fight we were going to ever have. But it was all going to end up okay. Nothing was irreversibly broken. I rolled my eyes and barked out a mocking laugh. This is ridiculous. Enough, Devin. I'm tired of whatever this is. My pulse beat against the inside of my skull as the scent and stress-induced headache crawled throughout it. No. No. His eyes? They were both remorseful and frightened. There wasn't a trace of deceit or cruelty. There was only honesty. Lindy, you disappeared seven years ago. He looked down at his phone in his hand and raised it up to me. To this day. On his screen was the date. The date was nearly identical except for the last digit of the year. When I glanced back into his eyes, I could now recognize the differences in his appearance. The loss of baby fat in his cheeks and around his eye sockets. He wore the years on his visage like tally marks. Only seven of them. But that would mean he was in his early 30s now and so much changes from your 20s to your 30s. He looked like a grown man now. I don't believe you. I muttered as my legs went numb. He must have seen the blood drain from my face as he ran toward me and grabbed my arms. Come here, he said, pulling me to the dining room chair and running a glass of water. We sat there for a few moments in silence, him standing attentively close by me and me staring at the glass of still water on the table just in front of me. I thought about all the things that were off, the worn-out sofa, how our elderly neighbor's home now housed the young family. 
He had to have been in his mid-70s when I last saw him and was probably gone now. The potted plant and the relocated spare key. The mantle. So many small things had changed, just as they do over the years. I have to talk to my wife, he said. His wife. Of course I had known somewhere inside of me at this point that that was who she was, but his words branded the idea into my consciousness and burned my heart. He belonged to someone else now. I tried not to show the pain. Luckily, my eyes were already red from the crying I had done. Devin was distant from me. I had lost him this evening. He had seven years to get over me. Seven years to comprehend the loss. I'm sure he thought I was somewhere else all that time, despite my protestations. So he may not have realized how cruel it was to say those words. To just drop them on me like a sickle. If this were true, I had disappeared, and the world continued to turn as it must. My pictures on the mantle were replaced. The house smelled different. It felt different. The people who inhabited it were its soul, and I was no longer part of it. I was frightened when I thought I had lost Devin on the hiking trail, but this, being erased, was a true horror. He stepped away quietly and I thought about what this all meant. Had I succumbed to a fugue state? Had I lived a life somewhere else for seven whole years? Did my family think I was dead? My brother, a day never went by that we didn't text or talk. We were just planning my dad's birthday. That meant his birthday would be due again in a few days. Did he think I left him? I grabbed my phone considering if I should call and again reminded myself it didn't work. For the first time, I realized that little glitch could have meaning. Maybe it really was out of service because I had stopped paying some point over the years. Or, and I barely let the thought plant itself in my mind. Had I never left the park? Had time somehow passed me by? Was my phone incompatible with this time, or place, or dimension? Devin and his wife both came in, their steps soft. Lindy, we had to call the police. I stood up sharply. What? You've been missing. Everyone thought you were dead. We had to. I glanced over at his wife, and her eyes darted away. I knew she'd been the one to do it. Well, he was calming me. Did you call my parents? What about Tony? They both shot each other tense glances. What? Tell me. Devin looked down, his eyes searching for something, and I knew whatever it was, it would be more bad news. Let's wait for the cop. I said fucking tell me. Devin glanced at his wife again, seeking a consensus, and I hated him for it. Your dad, he, uh, he died three years ago. A heart attack. I'm so sorry. My vision tunneled and I 
clutched the sides of the chair. My consciousness actively tried to reject the news by shutting me down. I pinched my eyes shut. A tear trickled down. No. I tried to say more, but the words lodged in my throat. I wanted Devin to hug me, to tell me everything was going to be okay. But I knew the man I loved just hours ago was lost to time. Loosely, I muttered. What about Mom and Tony? Did you call them at least? Devin and Tony were close. At least last I knew. Devin's eyes apologized for what he was about to say next. God, I don't know how to tell you this, he sighed. Oh my god, he said under his breath. What? Tony, he's gone too. Gone? Does he move? Where did he go? I saw the heaviness in his eyes. It was so hard for him to answer. No. Flynn's... I mean he passed away. I am so sorry. The voice inside of me screamed. But I was silent. Dizzy. My dad, his lack of self-care was always a source of tension with us. He was overweight and he smoked. I'd rather die than eat leaves for dinner, he used to say. But Tony? Tony was young and vibrant and he had just started to really have things going his way. Tony always buzzed with life. It was electric, even when he was at his lowest. He seems like he could live through anything. The news didn't make sense. I still hoped for the moment. Everyone would jump out and tell me it was a prank. Even if it meant I was surrounded by heartless bastards. Instead, there was only the thudding of my pulse against my temples. I felt myself emptying, my life force escaping as the edges of my vision tightened. Red and blue flickering lights reflected off the walls of the house and I crumbled to the floor. The echoes of Devin's voice calling my name fell into the background before I went to a dark place where things hurt far less.